welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. My guest this week is Jamie Collins in the chair. So people, uh, we're using the phrase, a friend of yours, Adam Tilley has coined the phrase, in the chair. Mm-hmm. After his uh, his sit down and on the record, he called up uh, another friend, Jeremy Hoff, and said, Jeremy, I was in the chair. So we like that phrase. We're going to stick. So if anybody wonders why you'll see in our house ads whenever, in the chair, you are in the chair. I like it. As long as there's no electrical cords attached to it, I guess I'm okay. There you go. <laughs> so thanks for coming in today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I want to talk to you. You grew up in High Point, right? Yeah. I'm curious, growing up in the area, when was the first time that you recognized you were in a furniture area? How did you come to to say, wow, this is furniture? Well, in the um, growing up, obviously, in High Point, you're surrounded by it. Downtown was all furniture showrooms. And my friends, you know, one friend of mine's family was the, they owned and ran Henry on furniture. Uh, Brack Color of Braxton Color was in my high school class. So it was everywhere. My uncle owned a hardware supply business that shipped nuts, bolts, screws, zippers, all things furniture manufacturing related all over the country to the factories that were buying his products. So it was always there. It was just part of the DNA of the town. Did you, when you were young, obviously little boys, right? You want to be a, a baseball player, or a hockey player, an astronaut, whatever. Did you aspire to be in the furniture business right from from a young age, or was that something you came to later? Um, oh, I wanted to be a policeman, and then I went to college and wanted to become an attorney. And I realized in school that I really didn't want to go to school for three more years. Uh, and I liked High Point. I liked the area and wanted to stay, so I figured I had two choices. I could either go in the textile business or I could go in the furniture business. So it really came later. Um, I can remember as a kid working at the country club. I loved every Saturday you'd see all the the guys in the big cars were the ones from the furniture business. They'd show up in their Lexus, they'd play cards, they'd eat lunch, they'd play 18 holes. I thought, that sounds like a pretty good lifestyle. But things change. And it plays out just exactly like that, right? Oh, 100%. 100%. So your first job was at Bassett. Yes. Venerable company. What did you learn? Oh, I I was so lucky to get that job. Um, I really wanted to be a rep on the road. And, you know, because I wanted the big car and the, you know, Mm -hmm. play cards and play golf. But my family was not directly related in any way to the furniture business, but it seemed interesting to me. I'd studied it in, in college in some business courses, and I just started making phone calls. Um, Lee Boone gave me some great advice. I, he, he's also from High Point. He said, you got to find one of the companies that has a training program, and there's not many left. So I called Bassett. The... VP of personnel answered the phone, which led to an interview, and the rest was was history. But I was only there for about a year and a half. But in that year and a half, I learned more than 
I think most people learn in the first five years that they're in this business because I was maybe the last to be able to work and train in domestic case goods factories. So the only thing they didn't let me do in that six month training program was tail a rip saw. Everything else I worked in the finishing room, I got pretty good with a buzz sander, worked in the QC department, shipping, you name it. I, I saw how the product was made. And then they put me in the office and I shadowed people in the customer service department, listened to the phone calls, credit department, traffic department, and then they put me on the road traveling with reps. That sounds like something that can't happen anymore. To, to be able to invest that much time and effort in training somebody, I mean, obviously, you weren't making sales at that point, right? I mean, it was just training, or were you doing both? It was just training. I was a glorified customer service rep. Um, but at the same time, to learn the business, I did get to travel smaller territories. I think my first trip on the road was to northern Florida, to Ocala and places like that. And I spent a lot of time in Arkansas and Louisiana. Uh, calling on the gallery stores and you, you learn so much about retail and about what it takes to to service an account uh, from the sales side when you do that but having that manufacturing knowledge made it it, it was just an invaluable experience hmm. the last of a generation to do that I think so yeah and the, and the, the interesting thing was my biggest responsibility was to be a part of the team that opened the very first Bassett store. So we, we brought the salespeople up, we trained them, we took them through the factories and through the design process for why the store was laid out the way it was and entertained them to make sure they you know felt like they were a part of the Bassett company. And that, yeah, first Bassett store, Port Charlotte, Florida, owned by Bill Bacon. Who's it's still in the business? Still in the business. Who was the first retailer you ever called on? The first big retailer I ever called on, I'll never forget it, was Marty Darvin. Chicago? Yes. When they opened the first Bassett Gallery uh, in the Darvin store, I was actually the one that hung the Bassett sign above the entry to the gallery. So I still see Marty every market. What was that like, that first call? I mean, you... you Tell me what it felt like. How did you prepare for that call? Oh, I had no idea what to do. You know, I was 22, 23 years old, and I was just doing whatever the reps told me to do. And um, it, it was just a matter of going in and saying, here's, here's the layout. Let's make sure everything is placed where it's supposed to be. Accessories are proper. The fabric wall is set up the way it was meant to. And everything else was done. I mean, Bassett's a well-oiled machine. It was then, it is now. And the team that we had in place to do the design work and to set up that gallery had, had done what they were supposed to. So we, I went up there and said hello. And really with, with its, the level of sales reps that Bassett had at that time, there wasn't a whole lot that a management guy needed to do, especially one that didn't have any experience. <laughs> Sounds like you have a little humility there. I guess for a 22-year-old, that's quite an accomplishment. Oh, well, what are you going to do? You're 22 years old. Most of the reps that you're working with are in their 
fifties and sixties, they know a lot more than you do. You can do you can do one of two things. You can either make them mad by telling them what to do, or you can shut up and listen. And I chose the latter. Must have worked out. So far so good. So from Bassett you went directly to Thomasville? From Bassett I went to Lee Industries, which was part of Lad Furniture. Okay. I was there for uh, a little over four years. Um, I was the VP of the Midwest and special accounts, which is basically our rental business. Uh, and that was another incredible learning experience. John Foster was the president when I got there, and he was one of the best product people uh, I've ever seen. He just was completely consumed by it, the ideas that came out of his his incredible intellect were sometimes beyond explanation, but usually ended up in some really uh, successful product. And we had three factories at the time in the U.S. Um, so that, and then John left the company, and they hired Jesse Brinkley, who was a salesman, a salesman among salesmen, uh, who really helped us to grow our business with our top accounts, which at the time were, this is an interesting list, our biggest account was Heilig Myers, our second largest account was Rhodes, number three was Sears Home Life, number four was Haverty's, and I think number five was Montgomery Ward's. So of the so top five, one still exists. One's still there, wow. What was different then in the business? I mean, what was that like when you called on those different kinds of accounts? I don't know that it was really all that different. Um, it things have obviously changed. Maybe it's the 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 transition from domestic manufacturing to an import based product that changed the overhead structure of the business. Um, I think we were able to charge more for the product then, uh, but we serviced it. That's a really hard question. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's kind of a different, I mean, some things seem to stay the same, Yeah. right? I mean, retailers still probably ask you for some, some of the similar kinds of things. I'm sure you s did then and still deal mm -hmm. with issues of exclusivity and you sell this one and you can't sell that one or issues of, of branding. Um, but the price competition certainly seems to have changed. Yeah, and I can remember too, we had a lot of conversations back then. We, it was back when you called youth correlate furniture because everything lined up. You know, you had corner desks and you know, 30 inch bachelor's chests and 40 inch dressers and 30 inch student desks with hutches above everything. So, you know, and all the furniture correlated together. And there were so many SKUs, we said, Youth business, youth furniture product is never going to be made overseas. How could you ever figure out what to put on a container? Well, guess what? Youth business changed. Mm -hmm. it, they moved away from the correlate business into more freestanding SKUs, which made it easier to build a container because there were fewer SKUs to worry about. And it completely changed the way the youth product was marketed. It's very different today. Very different. Mm -hmm. So, from Lad, Thomasville, Thomasville. Mm -hmm. So those are two interesting companies. I mean, if you read the book <coughs> Furniture Wars, both of them show up in there. You read the book, I presume. You yes. lived. You actually lived through that era. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Thomasville and that company, probably one of the better known brands in the business, um, probably one of the most studied uh, experiences in the industry. What was it like when you got there? We were on top of the world. Um, and the reason I wanted to work for Thomasville because, was because it was sort of the, the big blue of our industry. You had IBM in the 60s and 70s, big blue, and we had Thomasville. I mean, it was the icon of the business. Huge volume, better in product, a brand name, which there have never been very many of in our industry. And Hemingway was really flying when I got there. So they had licensed a product line that was extremely successful. And it was, it was a great place to be. What did they do well? Why were they in that position? Um, Thomasville knew who their customer was. They knew that it was described to me that Thomasville was the aspirational brand for what was traditionally a Broyhill customer. So we were, we were tastefully commercial, let's put it that way. Um, it was better product, better in pricing, but still with a commercial flair. They knew that that's who their customer was. We knew it, and we played on that in our marketing uh, and in how we developed additional products. So eventually that became one of those situations that that people will look at in retrospect and will be analyzed as a case study. You had Thomasville and all of the furniture brands, international brands, right? It was Thomasville, eventually Drexel, Henredon, Broyhill, all of the things that became Heritage Home Group, which recently sold. Um, What do you think changed in general terms? Um... I think people have been on your podcast before and it's been written many, many times that it's very hard for a publicly held furniture company to, to succeed long term. Um, it's hard to manage a cyclical business quarter to quarter. There are a few people in the industry who have done it very successfully. Um, and I think that you know, I can remember sitting in on analyst calls and some of the questions that the analysts ask, they're all very valid as far as the health of the business is concerned, but just because we opened 15 Thomasville stores in the first quarter and only two in the second quarter doesn't mean that we did something wrong. It means that we're looking at the long term. We were doing everything that needed to be done to set Thomasville up for long-term success. And I think sometimes it's very hard to succeed long term when you're only looking at one quarter at a time. So a lot of a lot of instances in the furniture business over the last twenty or thirty years of private equity or other kinds of financial companies trying to come into the furniture business. What is it that makes the furniture business so difficult for those kinds of companies, whether they're private or public? There seems to be. Um, there seem to be some unique characteristics, and I think the book Furniture Wars, you know, Michael tried to address what some of those are. What are some of the unique things about the furniture business that make it so difficult to fit into the box of traditional um, marketing and organizational structure? Um, it's a long answer. We have time. Uh, so going back 
to my college days. I had, took an entrepreneurial class and I did a big study on the furniture industry. And when you go back to the 50s, there were over 4,000 different registered furniture manufacturers in, in the United States. In, 90, in the mid-90s, 92, 93, I guess, when, when I was studying this, they estimated there were about 1,000. Well, we know there's a lot fewer than that today, but it started as a cottage industry. And I think at its core, furniture is still a cottage industry. We're still an entrepreneurial business. And entrepreneurs are willing to take risk. And they really don't manage to a spreadsheet. So, and then you throw in all of the new entrepreneurial leaders in our industry that are overseas, you know, the, the factories that have opened over there. So, so there's the numbers part of it. And it also goes, so that's one thing. We're entrepreneurs at heart. Secondly, it is a cyclical business and it's hard to manage short term. Um, so when you, when private equity or Wall Street in some way enters into our industry, they're buying a business that they think they can fix, something that they can improve upon and in some cases turn it around and sell it in a relatively short amount of time. Well, what happens first? The leadership changes. And if you look at the history of our business, the long-term success in our business is, is almost to a, t a person related to consistency of leadership. There are many different ways to lead. But if you look at the public companies and the private companies, the Wannick family, look at their success. You know, Pat Norton and Kurt Darrow at, at Lazy Boy, uh, Farouk at Ethan Allen, Rob Spillman and Bob Spillman at Bassett, and you go through, or Hutch Chow, who's been the head of Home Elegance, the company I worked for for 30 years, there's this consistency of leadership. Their styles are all different. But they, they've had the necessary amount of time to develop a plan and to work that plan. I think that's very important in our industry. So you bring up home ele elegance. Mm -hmm. Been there 13 years now. Thomasville, very well-known consumer brand probably for my generation and up to a certain age, one of the best known brands in the industry. Home Elegance is a different mindset, a different approach. Talk about the two different approaches and, and how you go about the business differently. Well, they're different. One's def one is not better than the other. Um, you know, Thomasville was a, the successful brand name. We had a captive retail audience today. I'm at a company that fights for floor space with a lot of competitors. Um, so you have to find ways to differentiate yourself just like we did at Thomasville. So is it the relationships that you build, um, it's the product that you develop, and it's how you service your customer. So the, the, the basics are the same. Um, where we differ is, and, and I think it's an advantage in our marketplace today, is we could never afford to 
build a consumer brand the way Thomas built it. Or, or the ones at Boro Hill and Bassett starting with the game show days. That's not going to happen. But if, if we're good at what we do, and we are, I believe that we really are, um, we're able to partner with some incredible regional brands and national brands uh, that have more legs with the consumer than we ever could. Whether that be a mom and pop retailer who has a great a great reputation in their smaller market, or the top 100 retailers that we work with around the country. So our our goal is where where Thomasville was rigid. You know, we that may be it may have been part of the problem with some of these companies too. They we're Thomasville. We're going to do it this way. There's no other way. You do it our way or Bye-bye. At, at Home Elegance, we're more nimble. We're able to work with many different sizes of retailers and to meet them where they are in their business. Um, we can find ways to work with them that benefit them, as opposed to at Thomasville, sometimes you get a little bit arrogant and you you know the benefit goes both ways, but it's it's more you need us more than we need you. At Home Elegance, it's more of a partnership, I think, um, where we can say, okay, you want to buy out of our warehouses, there's 11 of them in the US and Canada. You want to buy direct container, you want to buy mixed containers. For larger accounts, we can develop product proprietary just for them. We want to, we want to be a partner, and we want to do the things that it takes to benefit their business in a way that will be good for both of us. How does your sales approach differ when you sit down with a customer and you have a conversation? If you have a brand and, and you've got all of the, whatever comes with that, and now you have you, whatever assets, you know, nimbleness, flexibility, all of those things, how is the conversation different with a, with a retailer? Um, It's, I guess it's different because the, you have to make sure that you do what you say you're going to do. Um, if, if we meet with a retailer uh, and we say, yes, we can develop that product for you, then we better get it done. Uh, if With Thomasville, we were selling a whole program. It was it was a store. It was a gallery. The product was was already set. Right. This is this. Here's the showroom. This is your product. This is what you're going to buy. Today with Home Elegance, product is very important. It's it's and the program is also important, but it's a different sort of program. It's service. It's you know speed to market. It's supply chain. It's all the things that maybe were a little bit more of a given in a branded environment. Who's your least favorite retailer? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I don't have a least favorite retailer. Right? We love them all. Just kidding, folks. We're just messing with you. Um, you talked about speed to market. Mm -hmm. All we hear about today is the Amazon effect, the Amazon effect, the impact that the internet has had on the business. You have the ability to look back to when Amazon didn't exist. You have enough longevity in the business. 
you span that from when it was a purely brick and mortar world, even when there were dozens and dozens of department stores, to now when very few department stores, furniture stores. What do you think is different now? Is there an Amazon effect, and what is it? Um, I think Amazon, in particular, uh, tends to commoditize their, the products that sell on their platform. But we, as an industry, are pretty good at that anyway. Um, we, you know, we're always looking for how to sell more, how to create more value, and really all Amazon's doing is what we've always done. We're trying to find ways to meet the consumer where they want to be. Um, the packaging's different. Maybe the sizes of the product that we sell online are different because you've got to stay within the UPS parameters. But um, I think the Amazon effect is important, but it's not the only evolution in our industry. Um, bricks and mortar is still very important. The smart retailers, of which there are many, um, will use the internet to their advantage. And they will also use their logistics and their ability to deliver furniture in their given region to their advantage. Um, one of the problems that that I think even Christopher Guy was talking about on his podcast is is the returns. Dot, you know, dot com returns are a major issue in how to deal with that. Well, one of the advantages that a bricks and mortar operation has is they know how to make the furniture stick after it gets in the home. So how do they take their web presence in their market and leverage what they're already good at? Um, there are some retailers out there that are that are working on these types of programs right now. But I wonder if the Amazon effect long term isn't a positive for some of the uh, forward-looking major retailers in our industry. You mentioned that Amazon is one of a number of evolutions in the other in the industry. What other evolutions do you see the industry going through right now? Um, that's obviously the main one. Mm -hmm. you know, is, is what what is the long-term impact of online retail? The the other that's a good question because I guess that's the other evolutions in our industry are the same ones that have always been there. The evolution of style, um, the evolution of where the product is made. You know, we've got a tariff we're looking at right now. That's more of a an immediate question. So everybody's running to other countries to try and replace the production that was traditionally in China. So there's this evolution of manufacturing around the world. Uh, that that's probably the the most interesting uh, thing to observe right now I'd say are you curious where it goes next oh yeah very very because you know Vietnam's not that big there's and we're not the only industry that's that's moving there so you know it really all depends on what happens with the trade war
I, it's funny. I actually looked this up as we were as people were moving to Vietnam. I looked up the population of Vietnam, um, and I, it's it's about the same size as one large Chinese province. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, where the labor force comes from is anybody's guess. It moves around. I know it's becoming very competitive. So, you know, we've seen every country has its positives and negatives. You, know, you look at Malaysia, Malaysia has incredible raw materials. They have very nice factories. Um, they don't have the workforce, so they have to import the workforce. Um, Vietnam has some raw materials. Most of the raw materials come from other countries. And they have a limited workforce that's going to become more limited because of all of the many industries. I had somebody describe the Ho Chi Minh City Airport as so like a market. It was so full of people from all over the world that you know these business people coming to explore the opportunity to produce their products in this one place. Hmm. Let's talk about the evolution of style. Hmm. This historically has been um, a very suited business. You talked about how youth used to be a correlate business. Yeah. That's gone. I hear people talking more and more about the consumer doesn't necessarily want a complete suit of furniture. They'd like a little eclecticism and mix and match. How does that change, or does it change, the way the industry goes about its business? I think it might make it a little harder to, to flow product and how, you know, to figure out what to inventory or for a retailer, you know, how to how they want, what their rate of sale is going to be for on each item, but it is very true, and I think the internet has had a huge impact. Um, I, I can remember how difficult it was in years past to sell you know, medium and medium low price point case goods that had a distressed finish. You couldn't even put little cowtail marks on it without somebody saying, "Well, that that that's not clean enough. Our customer's not going to understand." Well, today thanks to RH and Pottery Barn and all of these, the, the other companies that are really leading the more commercial end of style today, um, we can wire brush product. We can, it can be gray instead of brown, where, you know, before it could be brown instead of red cherry. You know, so there's this evolution, uh, but, and it is more eclectic. It is more eclectic. Um, you don't have to have a five-piece bedroom anymore. Now, that's it's funny because in our showroom, that's still how we quote it. But we used to quote, everybody wanted a five-piece price. Today, they only want three. They want to know the dresser, the mirror, and the bed price. And the other pieces can be mixed and matched. We have some retailers that, that um, don't even want the mirror price because they're going to, you know, people are hanging televisions over the dresser or... They want to use accent chest next to the bed instead of a matching nightstand. So it's a much less matchy-matchy world than it used to be, but there's still a place for a suit of furniture. What does that mean from an operational standpoint? I mean, it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but there's a certain efficiency to creating an entire suit out of the same look, right, out of the same wood. And to try to create an item business, which is mm -hmm. what it's becoming, from an operational and organizational standpoint, sounds to me like a big, a bigger challenge. Am I? Is that for for us for volume manufacturers like we are? Yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. You have to figure out, you know, how are you going to run it down the line? How are you going to get it on a container together if it's not the same finish or you're not using the same parts? So 
yeah, that, that remains to be seen for us. <laughs> Do styles change more quickly now? There, I mean, we talked about the Amazon effect. I think there seems to also be with younger consumers the IKEA effect, right? The idea that, uh, you know, my generation, I bought something, I expected to have my dining room set for 20 years, 25 years. My son has absolutely no interest in his parents' furniture. Most of his generation don't really want their parents' furniture. They're, I'll buy it, I'm moving in a couple of years, I'll buy something else. What kind of complications does that create to, for, for a price-driven business? Because efficiency and price competitiveness are you kind of have to run hand in hand, right? So if you can't get efficiency, it's hard to get price competitiveness. How, how do you wrestle with that? I think it creates an opportunity for more volume. <laughs> if, um, if people are buying dining room furniture, my, my mother has her mother's dining room. I don't want it. So, but if, if this creates an opportunity for a more um, frequent selling process, sounds, sounds like a good thing, not a bad thing to me. Well, it's a, it's, it's a funny thing. It sounds like something the furniture industry has, has always uh, wanted to happen, right? How do you shorten replacement cycles? The bedding industry has been very good about that, yes. trying to get people to increase their replacement cycle. Uh, I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my guest this week is Jamie Collins, Executive Vice President at Home Elegance. Let's talk about something other than furniture for a minute. You talked about when you were young, watching those golfers pull up and, and have lunch. What do you do to relax? What do you do for fun? Well, I spend as much time as I can with my family. Um, you know, the nature of our business today is you spend a lot of time away from home. So when I'm there, I try to do what I can with them. You know, it's uh, I'm here. I'm in a home right now. I got to take them to school this morning. That was fantastic. They're showing some interest in golf. I have a nine-year-old son and an eleven-year-old daughter, and so there's. I've got a threesome now. I hope. Um, hopefully, if my wife will pick it up, we'll make it a foursome. Um, so it's it's uh, just being with them. That's the main thing. You know, I love this business. Um, I think about it all the time. I love being a part of it, um, but it, it affords me the opportunity to uh, create a nice lifestyle for my family. Do you socialize within the furniture business? So if, if you're going to have a barbecue, is it pretty much populated with furniture folk? You know, it's funny. There's not that many of us in High Point anymore. Um, a few, a few, but usually it's more people on the periphery, you know, people in the real estate business or uh, the people that, that work in it, maybe in the showroom industry or they're in the contracting business and they build out showrooms, things like that. But as far as furniture people, not that often. <laughs> I see enough of them. <laughs> so I know you like to listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. You actually quoted some of ours here, mm -hmm. so you listen to ours. What else do you listen to? What else do you like to read? I, I like to read things that I've, I love a, a good beach novel. You know, I'm, if it's a thriller, I'll read it. Um, I like to watch shows on Netflix when I can, or I'm very excited that Game of Thrones is back. But you know, for Did the, you read the book or did you pick it up with the movie? I did not read should the say book. Books. I did not read the books, no. Um, I've thought about going back and reading them because I 
I've got plenty of time on airplanes to do it. Uh, that's, you know, read, I like to read the news. I like to keep up with current events and, um, and work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, I, this is now maybe our seventh or eighth podcast. And with the exception of George Revington, finding out how people in the furniture industry relax is a very difficult question. It is always the most difficult question, I find, because furniture is one of those things that if you're in it, you're it's in, in it. you. Yeah, yeah. my wife and I, our favorite thing to do is after the kids go to bed at night is to just sit down with a cup of tea and talk and maybe watch one of our favorite shows. And that one hour of decompression is my favorite part of the day. Favorite book? Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. Outstanding book. Very sad. Sad, but I love a good Western, and it it's long enough that you really feel like you get to know the characters well. And the miniseries from the 90s was perfect. You know, it was eight hours, so you, again, you got to develop these characters, and I go back and watch it every few years just because I love it so much. <laughs> and Robert Duvall's the best, so... Phenomenal actor. Phenomenal actor. Uh, favorite ice cream? There's a ice cream shop in Blowing Rock, North Carolina called Killwins, and they have a salted caramel ice cream, and that is by far my favorite. Favorite curse word? It's, I asked. It's on there. If you want to spell it, you can spell it. It starts with an F. Okay. <laughs> now, you referenced the, the Christopher Guy podcast. I, I asked him that question. We didn't include it in the podcast because he thought about it, thought about it, and honestly, he doesn't use those words. So mm -hmm. he is such a, a gracious gentleman. Well, that, uh, he's much classier than I am then. <laughs> me too, because I have, I, have, I have a favorite. Um, person other than a family member who you'd most like to have dinner with historical figure, somebody from past, present, future you would most like to sit down and have a dinner with? Franklin D. Roosevelt. Why? Um, he led the country through an incredible transition period uh, and did it with grace and with a lot of detractors like any politician would. He's always been one of my favorite presidents. Okay. Five years from now, the furniture industry looks like. No, let's. I tell you what. Let's, for for fun, let's really dig out the crystal ball. Okay. Okay. Your career is twenty five years. Twenty five years. Okay. So twenty five years from now, two people are sitting down having a conversation about the furniture industry. What are they talking about? They say, "Do you remember all the fun we used to have at those markets? <laughs> How we ha used to have to rush to get the samples ready for the show. Now we still have a showroom, but it's much smaller, and there's this big screen, and we've got this 3D virtual showroom, and we can you can even sit in the furniture, and you can tell how it's going to sit, but it's not really there. You know, the, the thing about the furniture business is it really is still all about the people. That is a common thing, and." Today, tomorrow, 25, 50 years in the past, we're still talking about the people that we interact with. And it won't change. You know, we're going to continue to evolve. We're going to be a better version of what we are today. Technology will change. But you know what? A chair is still going to have four legs. 
a bed frame still has to hold a king queen twin full-size mattress and a table still has to be somewhere where you can eat a meal so the product will evolve the styles will change but for the most part minus some functions especially in bedding and motion upholstery is still furniture right and maybe that's why the people matter so much because you know the, the product is going to change a little bit here and there taste will change but it's still a people business and I hope that 25 50 years from now our predecessors are saying the same thing this is an industry that's all about the people I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up it's all about the people thanks for taking the time thank you, thank you.